In this episode, Pastor William Shiflett and Scott discuss the book, Saved from What, by Dr. R.C. Sproul. William is pastor of Reasoning Tree Church in Edinburgh, Virginia. He is also a licensed pilot, motorcycle enthusiast, blogger, and author of several books. Please see the information below to check out the links to his information. Bibles, Bulldogs, and Beards is brought to you by BibleBulldog.com. Hey, I'm Scott, and I'm here with uh, Pastor William Shiflett, who is uh, pastor of Reasoning Tree Church in Edinburgh, Virginia. He's a licensed pilot, author, and uh, a blogger. And uh, you got a couple different books up uh, this week. You want to tell us a little bit about these books? Sure. These are, uh, well, the one Cassio's watch is an angel story, and uh, angel comes down to help these people. They don't know he's there. Is part of the story that uh, he's in the background working, which is the way angels work in our lives most of the time. Very few people see or know about the angels that are working in our lives. Um, and then the, the Creatures is a fantasy, sci-fi kind of weird story that has a great uh, message. And I really can't say much more about it without giving the story away, but uh, it, it, it's worth it. People can go to my blog, Williams goodword.org and it's dash williams dash good dash word dot org uh, and they can get more information about the books and of course they're available on Amazon as well as direct from me if they prefer. Well that's great. Yeah you need to check check those out. Well we've been talking about uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul's book Saved from What? Um we just finished up chapter two, but he uh, starts this chapter, chapter three, out talking about brands and logos, and he uh, talks about how he's amazed at the effort exerted by Madison Avenue in creating different logos and the amount of money that's spent on logos. And of course, everyone wants to brand themselves. We see brands every everywhere we go, and of course, he points out that the symbol of uh, Christianity um, is the cross. The, my question is, the cross may be the most heinous, horrific, uh, and terrible uh, torture uh, system ever devised. Shouldn't the cross be a symbol of shame? Well, that's the whole, that's the whole point of, that he's kind of getting at here. You, and typically in, a, in our modern culture, for example, as an author, I've had that kind of pressure to brand yourself. What is your what are you particularly offering? And uh, we do that in the churches. This church represents this. This church represents that when it should represent the cross. And uh, yes, the cross should be, you know, when Jesus says, take up your cross daily. We trivialize that he meant essentially die to yourself every day which is painful. We talked a little bit last time about self-denial. And the cross is an instrument of torture. It is an instrument of pain. It is not a nice little golden thing that hangs around your neck that shows you are a believer when all kinds of people who are not believers wear that symbol uh, and use that symbol. It, it, it should not. It should be something that separates us from the world. And in, in far too many aspects of the Christian church, it's kind of seen as a, as a uniting thing with the world. You know, you have a cross. Now, we should have crosses because it is a way to 
you know, declare to the world that we are Christians. But my point is that there are lots of people who aren't Christians, who don't know Christ, who don't know anything about him as it is recorded in the word. Mm -hmm. And they buy into the idea that that cross symbolizes peace, patience, prosperity, when it really has those negative connotations if you're going to really follow Christ and and carry the cross. You know, the, the reproach uh, as though as a uh, uh, on the old rugged cross. I go far away. It's an old rugged cross. Uh, and he talks about in the one verse uh, the shame it's shame and reproach gladly bear. I will gladly bear the shame and reproach of the cro cross. But in our culture it doesn't have much shame and reproach anymore. It really should. If we're going to be consistent with the historical aspects of the crucifixion of Christ. Right. We could also, though, uh, couldn't we look at the grace side of the cross, and it's from that side, or maybe the proper way to say it would be from the other side of the cross um, in the resurrection. That's where the, uh, we see more clearly the grace and the love and the mercy of God rather than the cross itself. But we do, we sing a, a lot of songs, you know, uh, the old rugged cross, of course, and many songs about the cross. And most churches have crosses on their steeple, and, and that's what identifies Christianity today, I guess, is the logo of uh, Christianity. Well, you know, that's, that's, a, that's an excellent observation. It's interesting with respect to the resurrection, which we absolutely affirm, and which, without which we have no hope. But isn't it amazing how many times in the Gospels, the, Paul, and, and R.C. talks about this in one place where he says, Paul used a little hyperbole when he talked to the Corinthians and said, I don't want to know anything among you but Christ crucified. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the cross is central to the Christian faith as, as a symbol both of our need to die to self and as a symbol of the promise of life and, and fellowship with God. So yeah, it, goes, it has both of those connotations. The problem, I think, is in our culture, there's so much emphasis on the grace side of it right. that we've lost. The, the, what, what made the grace possible is the suffering of the cross. You know? right. uh, it's a free gift. Uh, it's free to us, but it wasn't free for Christ. Right. Uh, he paid the ultimate, the right. ultimate cost. Exactly. Um, my next question was about the hyperbole, um, and let me go ahead and read First uh, Corinthians chapter two, verse one through five. It says, "And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom." For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of me, but in the power of God. And of course, a lot of people don't even know what hyperbole is. Could you maybe uh, explain uh, possibly to those that may not know, most people probably do, but uh, you, you never know. And uh, you, you did touch on it. Uh, explain a little bit more. Could you go into a little bit more sure. detail how 
Paul is using hyperbole in this. Sure. Piece. So hyperbole is the is a literary and and a figurative way of speaking to emphasize something dramatically and technically it's exaggeration for the purpose of effect. Uh, for example, Jesus says, "If your right eye uh, offends you, pluck it out." Uh, he doesn't really mean you should pluck out your eye because lust is not a problem of the eye. Lust is a problem of the heart. So he's using hyperbolic language. Um, and now that's tricky because there's some things that would absolutely are supposed to take that way. But but hyperbole overall means exaggeration for the purpose of effect. And the illustration I always use for people to know, we, we talk about this all the time, is when you say things like it's raining cats and dogs or it is... Uh, I went to this place and everybody and his brother was there. That's that's hyperbole. We we not we're not lying. We're exaggerating to convey an effect. Right. And so Paul is is in that in that text really emphasizing what's really important here is the cross. And that's got to be my focus. Now, once people get saved, then yes, we move into other areas of, of growth and discipline, but the central point is Christ crucified. Until you get that and the reason why he was crucified, then you can get into the benefits of his crucifixion. But hyperbole simply means that I'm exaggerating for effect, and it is a common part of human speech and therefore is found in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, So if I can give you another quick example where people will, especially in the charismatic church or other areas where you have some lack of balance about healing, well, Jesus went in town and he healed everybody. Okay, that's hyperbole because it's physically impossible to heal, to touch, to deal with everyone in a given village. If you had a thousand people there, you, you know, you would be constantly the whole 24-hour period. So it's a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. It's exaggeration for effect to, to describe the comprehensiveness of an act and, and, and the, those that kind of, of stuff. Okay, so that's what hyperbole means. A lot of people don't uh, don't like big words, but we use it all the time. Right. In in uh, if I can give you another one, somebody says that that restaurant is to die for. Well, no, no restaurant is to die for. It might be good, and and a host of other experiences that we do that way. Uh, so when. He, uh, Paul says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's basically, is he basically saying that that's the central importance of his message? Of course, he teaches uh, Christian conduct and and all the other doctrines of of Christ, but that's the central importance. Is it, uh, um, would it be safe to say that the, the apostles were, uh, evangelical pastors or evangelicals. Oh well, that's, that uh, go be going too far out on a limb. Well, it that would depend. Excuse me. <coughs> that of course depends on your definition of evangelical. You right. see, Joel Osteen would be considered an evangelical today, and we would have absolutely nothing in common with him, right? Because the cross of Christ and the suffering of Christ are not central to his ministry. Everything else is central, but not that. So we wouldn't want to. We wouldn't want to say that. Uh, so the definition of evangelical is is depending on who you talk to would would come into that. 
uh, Billy Graham would be considered an evangelical, but John MacArthur doesn't even think Billy Graham was a Christian, you know. So uh, you get into you can get into that debate. What we can say is that they were ardent uh, defenders of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, with the understanding that He was God coming to flesh to fulfill all the prophetic scriptures about the Messiah. Right. You know, and and people lose sight of this sometimes. And I try to bring it out. Whenever I get into that, and I, I, in our study right now in the Sermon on the Mount, when you go back to, for example, Isaiah 35, I think it is, it says, your God will come to you, and then the lame will leap and the dumb will talk. So when you see these things fulfilled in the life of Christ, it's not just God's messenger. It is God himself, the second member of the triune God. Right. So that's where I think you would, to avoid modern labels that are up, for discussion, right. focus on that fact that they were just, they were absolute ardent defenders of the life and person of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. as God. And they were eyewitnesses uh, as well. Exactly. Um, so they definitely knew what they were talking about. Um, next, he moves on to the significance uh, of, the cry, uh, of the cross and, of course, of Christ as well. Um and he touches on the fact that uh, when he talks to people, that a lot of them will come back and tell him that they don't really feel the need uh, for the cross. Uh, people in America, you know, is, especially right now, people in America are concerned. They're concerned about the war in Ukraine. Uh, they're, uh, they're concerned, of course, about the COVID situation that we've been through, and uh, uh, it's nice that we don't hear a whole lot about that anymore, not that uh, hearing about the war is any better, but um, people are also worried about the lack of moral leadership uh, in our country. I think a lot of Christians are worried about that, and the concern about inflation, uh, the higher cost of live, uh, to live, uh, especially for people on a fixed income. Um why is it that uh, they're concerned about all these things, but they don't really feel the need for the for the cross? Do you have an opinion? Well, I think it's because uh, they don't understand, and this is a, this is a point that I I try to make is, and I I put the same caveat as I did last week about the a brokenness that it's sin. It isn't just you know. A little bit of, of a problem. I, I think it's because people don't see that what we're experiencing in the world is a consequence of individual sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it drills down to that. It's that whole thing about, which I, I've used this illustration many times, uh, most people are basically good. <laughs> well, people say that, but they don't really think it through. Right. Because if most people were basically good, uh, we, would we have the kind of crime that we have? If most people were basically good, would we have a, a, a leader in Russia threatening the use of nuclear weapons when everybody on the planet knows what nuclear weapons will do? It, 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 it's a Pandora's box that you cannot sh- close again. Right. Uh, so, so what is that? Is it just he? Is he just bad? Well, then how did he get in this position of authority? And then you have all those things. So I think it's part of people are worried, but they don't see that the circumstances affecting us are the accumulation of human sin. 
Now, that might sound simplistic in some ways, but that's really what it comes down to. Uh, you talk about moral leadership. Well, we've got to have a definition of morality. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got to have a definition of leadership. What, what does that mean? Uh, and then you have to have structures for that that have been undermined. Why have we undermined the things that, through history, have developed good quality leaders, like education, like difficulty, like adversity? We're, we're trying to get rid of all of that stuff, and then we wonder why we have a vacuum. But why are we getting rid of it? It's all because of the, the brokenness of, that is part of us. We are the problem. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think people understand that. They, they, it's so easy to, to look at those people and say they're the ones. It's their fault. And, and, of course, we have that in our culture politically where it's both sides are attacking the other side. Very few people are looking at how can we come together in the middle, which is the only way our culture survives. Mm -hmm. It's just blame them as though, as if they are the only ones that have this problem. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's that's part of it. Now, obviously, even that is a product of our sinfulness. The Bible says we we lack understanding. We stumble around in darkness. We prefer things that we assume are right uh, that aren't beneficial. And so it's a sin problem that I just don't think people connect with as well as in previous American generations. Right. Okay, uh, I would say it like that. We had, obviously, we had a much more religious heritage. More people had these concepts. They were more likely to look for God when things went wrong, mm -hmm. to change rather than just to get me through this and then I can go on living my life. So that's my my viewpoint on it. It's a bit lengthy. Well, it was good. Um, it sounded like to me that uh, what we're lacking maybe is uh, a bit of authority in, in our lives, and that might fall back to like the Word of God, you know, or God Himself uh, in it. I was trying to think of a of a scripture where I could fit in here. So I prayed about it and thought about it, and I think you had talked about the book of Hosea uh, during one of your messages. I'm not sure if it was on a Wednesday night or uh, I think it was you. Maybe I was listening to someone else, but of course, in the book of Hosea, God um, talks about how His people have abandon him. Um, they become a harlot wife, I think it says, in an adulterous nation. Uh, that sounds a little familiar, uh, kind of like our nation, and how they violated their vow you know, to, to God. And I think in chapter 4, um, it starts, let's see, chapter 4, it starts out, hear the word of the Lord, ye children of, of Israel. And we could probably stop right there. Hear the word of the Lord. And that's an authority in our lives, uh, or gives us that. And it goes on, and actually, uh, verse 6 was what popped into my mind uh, first. Verse 6 says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, uh, because you have rejected knowledge. Uh, and he goes on to say, I will reject you and your your children, so people will reject the knowledge of, of God. Do you think that the people uh, don't in our country maybe uh, feel the need for the cross because they feel no need for the Word of God or even God Himself? Yeah, I think that's a big problem, and I have to say it's a problem that extends into the church. 
that the you know the Bible's good, but it really doesn't speak to me uh, on a day to day basis. Well, every verse in the Bible, no, is not going to speak to you on a day to day basis. But the principles enshrined there can speak to our culture. Uh, nobody likes this, but for example, in the Book of Proverbs, it gives us instructions about raising children and discipline disciplining children. Now, you can get into all kinds of debates about whether we're going to use timeouts or whether we're going to use corporal punishment like spanking, whether you're going to ground them, whatever you're doing. But the problem is in our culture, there's very little discipline for children anymore. Mm -hmm. And this is a consequence that's brought us to this place. But I think a lot of it is simply, again, that sinfulness. I don't, I, I, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm good enough on my own without any help from God. I don't need him. Uh, very easy to say when you live in suburbia and everything's going well. When things, when the wheels start to come off, then you, you could have uh, a, a, a bit of a turnaround in the way you think. Now, let me, let me throw out something that kind of, it's a little bit of history here, but it relates to us. Uh, what happened at the end of World War I? Now, a lot of people can't tell you what happened at the end of World War I. Mm -hmm. uh, the, it was called the War to End All Wars. Uh, about 16 million people died in World War I. Devastated, uh, great, great countries devastated. You know, America suffered and, and England and France and Germany and, of course, most of Europe. And then you know what happened? As World War I came to a close, there was the Spanish flu that came upon the world, and an estimated 50 million died from that flu. Now, my point is that in the context of those kind of events, you see how short life is, how difficult life is. And what we've had, really, since World War II is, is pretty much relative ease. You know, we've been involved in a few little conflicts, and little conflicts uh, is a subjective term as well. Vietnam, Afghanistan, uh, but we haven't had any kind of national suffering like occurred in those earlier days where people came to grips with their mortality, that we're not going to live forever, and every day that we live is not going to be wonderful. Uh, sacrifices had to be made. Families lost loved ones, whether it be in the war uh, and, and, and so forth. And then you see that, don't you? You see the, the end of the flu, uh, a decade later, the Great Depression, uh, 15 years after that, World War II, it was a string of human suffering. It was horrific. But in America, at least, it drove people to, to consider their mortality, the fact that we're not going to live forever, and being ready for uh, death. And I think that's a big part of today. We just cultivated a society where death is... We're not going to talk about that. We leave it alone. And as a consequence, we don't talk about what happens after death, mm -hmm. which is, again, we're talking from a Christian perspective, but it's important for people to know that many religions talk about a, a un, uh, undesirable uh, future after death. And even within the, the reincarnation people, you don't get to pick what you come back as. You can come back as a dog. You can come back in Hinduism. You, if you, if you're a man who has beat his wife, 
you come back as the wife who's going to be beaten by her husband. That's just another word for hell, in my opinion, okay? And the difference is that Christ says, here's a way out of that. Hinduism says, well, it's up to you. You've got to figure it out. So I, I, I know that's a lengthy answer, but that's what I think. I think people have lost the fear of death. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they never think about what happens after death, which the Bible is clearly interested in calling our attention to. Right. <clears throat> um, in Ho- Hosea, he says, my people are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. you think that's a reflection on the church today? Absolutely. Absolutely. The church. And again, I have to be careful here because it can sound like I'm being really hypercritical I know it all. If you listen to me, the world will be a better place. Uh, most of us feel that way in one way or another. Yeah, we do. Uh, but, but I'll give an example. I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with, I'm not dealing with, I have a Facebook associate who posts all these things all the time. And so yesterday he posted one that said, uh, is it true that before you were born again, everyone was a atheist or an agnostic? Now, I wrote back and said that's false because virtually everybody believes in God of some sort, okay? They don't necessarily believe in a Christian God. Uh, and he he pushed back about that and said that I was just trying to cover my sin. I didn't want to deal with my sinfulness by admitting that I was a, an agnostic. Now, then I pointed out some of the scriptures that convey the idea that men and people do believe in God. It's the wrong God, or it's stuff that's incorrect about God. Uh, for example, the first commandment is what? Honor the Lord. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me, which implies that that you can at least believe that there are other gods. Well, there aren't, but you can believe that, which means you're serving a God. Right. Uh, Paul says to the Corinth, to the Romans, he says, I testify about my people. They have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. Okay, go back to that word, that not according to knowledge. So so here is a person who's very sincere in their faith. I don't doubt that. But they don't know what they're talking about. And this happens so much. And you have you either have uh, uh, you have people in the church that God and grieves me that simply don't know the most fundamental. We're not talking about deep theological stuff. We're talking about fundamental Bible knowledge that says everybody in the world believes in God. They just believe the wrong things about God. Paul right. believed in God before he became a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, he believed in God. He was yeah. not an atheist. He was not an agnostic. He was wrong about what he believed about God. Right. And, 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 and that comes back to our earlier statement of authority. There are just so many people who don't accept the authority of the Scripture, and when they do, they don't know it comprehensively. They know a verse here, they know a verse there, they know a thought this way, but they don't have those layers of knowledge uh, that that this whole conversation I had with this person, who again is I'm convinced is a Christian. Uh, but, but their their knowledge of Scripture is so shallow because there's a hundred verses that can prove that people believe in God before they become believers in God. And that's a paradox, isn't it? But it's true. Right. It's true. I believed in God before I became a Christian, but I believed the wrong things about God. And, and, and so 
I do think the church is responsible for its failure to to teach and preach and focus on Christ and Him crucified. If I can use go back to that, uh, we the Christian church is. I have another example. I won't plow into it. The Christian church has a responsibility to declare Christ, mm-hmm. not five hundred other things in the culture that you can get. You need financial management. There's tens of of, uh, methods for accomplishing that. Marriage counseling, the church can do that. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I'm saying the church doesn't have to, that shouldn't be the primary thing the church does. Right. Because you can get that anywhere. Uh, uh, So that, I'm rambling there, I guess, but I do think the church without, without trying to say, you know, we're the best church or some other church is the best church, I'm simply saying the Christian church has, as a whole, let me give you another example, okay? Okay. Uh, just recently, the Catholic, there was a, a group of, of Catholic young people who faulted their leaders for not talking more about climate change. The purpose of the church is to tell people that we inhabit a world that is fading away whether by climate change or nuclear war or anything else. Our, our, our focus is upon the life to come. And so here you have here you have Catholic young people pressuring their leaders to spend more time talking about climate change instead of the work of Christ on our behalf that will rescue us from those fears of of climate change, which of course is highly uh, uh, exaggerated. It's highly exaggerated. But I I see that as another example. Instead of saying, let's get back to the knowledge of Scripture, let's really let's really drill down on who God is. We want to just join in a, a social cultural moment, a cultural moment. And I can't go. I can't get off that. But that's another example. Mm-hmm. Well, which which brings a question, I guess uh, this falls right into that, how, how things like that creep into the church. Uh, Dr. Sproul says there are three kinds of theology, and uh, I'll let you talk about the isms, uh, and if you would, if you would explain each one of them and uh, how they tie in possibly, you know, to the church today. Sure, sure. So Pelagianism is the belief that Augustine really dealt with, which basically says that the fall of man did not hurt our ability to serve God faithfully, okay? That man is sick, but he's not dead. Augustine, on the other hand, focused on that historic teachings that come from Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins. he focused on that and said, we have no ability. Pelagius said, oh, we have lots of ability. And then you have the semi-Pelagians. This is a, you know, a simpler explanation. The semi-Pelagians are the ones that say it's a bit of grace and works. You know, <laughs> we have to, we have to do the works. And, and that's where the Catholics come into, uh, because of, they believe in infused grace where by the works of righteousness you earn more grace. 
versus August, uh, Augustinianism, uh, which would say that we are given all the grace we ever need, and as a consequence, we learn to live a life of righteousness. Uh, the, the, the second of those two, the first and second one, Pelagius, which I'm not a bad person, that gives rise to that argument. I'm a basically good person. Most people are basically good. And again, I say that if most people were basically good, why do we have so many problems in the world? It simply is impossible that two or three bad people are creating all these problems. But then semi-Pelagianism is almost as bad. It says, I can, I can do it. And those are the people that say, well, one of these days I'm going to get in church. You know, one of these days it'll work out and I'll get, I'll get in church and, and, you know, God understands. I, I, I'm, I, I want to do the right thing, but things just keep interfering with it. And that person is still holding on to the belief that I can contribute to my salvation versus Augustine, who takes the position of Luther and Calvin as well, and in varying degrees of we cannot do anything. We are not sick. We're dead. Um, and dead people cannot do anything for themselves. God has to do the work in us, through us, and for us. And uh, we're not robots. We do make free will decisions, but we cannot make the right decision without God's intervention in our hearts. Mm -hmm. And and Jesus says that no man comes to the Father except through me, and no one comes to me unless the Spirit draws him. Right. And and that's well, Pelagius. Uh, sounds a lot like uh, what we would call uh, liberalism yeah. in, in the church today. And, of course, liberal liberalism in the church is different than uh, liberalism in politics. It's similar but different, uh, a bit different. Um, you think that's what has gotten into a lot of churches today and we we are being destroyed because of the lack of knowledge because of that because of a wrong teaching that has creeped into the church yeah absolutely nowadays. yeah and uh this has made its way into a lot of major denominations have been over overtaken with it and, and i i know of a major denomination that's fighting with it right now right uh, and uh most of them have been fighting with it i guess since uh uh, what do they call it? The period of enlightenment, right? Uh, back in okay, so here, uh, this this is an issue that uh, has been around, and that that means we must be constantly vigilant. You know what happens sometimes a church, whether it be a denomination or a local church, uh, you start growing, you see the move of God, and then you drift from the things that are really important. Okay. Right. Now, let me read this. Let me read this statement, and I'll tell you who said it and when. He says, things are not much different in the church. The sermon has been reduced to parenthetical church remarks about newspaper events. As long as I've been here, I have heard only one sermon in which you could hear something like a genuine proclamation of the gospel. One big question continually attracting my attention in view of these facts is whether one here really can still speak about Christianity. 
There's no sense to expect the fruits where the word really is no longer preached. But what then becomes of Christianity? The enlightened American, rather than viewing all this with skepticism, instead welcomes it as an example of progress. The fundamentalist sermon that occupies such a prominent place in the southern states has only one prominent Baptist representative in New York, one who preaches the resurrection of the flesh and the virgin birth before believers and the curious alike. In New York, they preach about virtually everything. Only one thing is not addressed or is addressed so rarely that I have yet, as yet been able to hear it, namely, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross, sin, and forgiveness, death, and life. Now, this is a person saying that the, the truths of the Christian faith are not being preached, and this was Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he visited America in the 1920s. Wow. Uh, so you can see it's not a new problem. Mm -hmm. It is one we must be constantly on guard against, which comes back to Paul's emphasis, the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. And you, you can see how easy it is to, to for that. And, and again, we have to, we just have to be on our guard against anything that would supplant the gospel. Because we might grow, we might have accolades from humankind, but God frowns upon us and says, you're being destroyed because the word is not being proclaimed. Right. And there's got to be a, there's got to be a source for this or, you know, how does, how do you think this gets in the churches? Um, I assume it can come from several different areas, like you know the seminaries. If it's being taught in seminaries and in the new pastors that are coming in, they're coming in to church with these ideas. Um, or do you, a lot of it, I guess, could be coming in from outside as well. And you get a lot of church leaders, you know, set up as leaders in the church, and they bring in pastors with with these ideas right, but right. Uh, um, well let's take an example from from rc himself where he says in this he says when i was in seminary one of my classmates gave a sermon in homiletics class on the cross of christ as a lamb slain for us when he finished the, the professor was furious he verbally attacked the student while he was still standing in the pulpit. He said in his rage, how dare you preach a substitutionary view of the atonement in this day and age? He saw the substitutionary view of the atonement as an archaic, old-fashioned notion of what of one person dying to bear the sins of others. He categorically rejected the cross as a kind of cosmic transaction by which we are reconciled to God. So you, you mentioned the seminaries. Yes, uh, the greater question is, how do we have people in the seminary teaching uh, complete falsehood? Okay, so there is, a, there is debate on certain things. I'm reading a book just now called Five Views on Apologetics. Which apologetic method is the best? And very sincere Christians, including John Frame, uh, is, is in this book talking about which is the best way to do apologetics. So you have those kind of disagreements and back and forth. But all five of these men in this book, and the, the sixth being the editor, would absolutely affirm the work of Christ as necessary for our salvation. And I think we need 
uh, some method where we stop saying, well, you know, they say they're Christians and start really pounding down on what does that or drilling down would be a better word. What does being a Christian mean to you? And if the person cannot respond in a, I'm a wretched sinner whom God has saved by grace, we have to put up a big, a big flag there. You know, we have to put up a big flag and say, uh, no, no, no. Uh, I, I think that's part of how it happens. Yeah. Right. Um, so this, this stuff is getting in, uh, that's getting into the church is taking away the need for, for the cross and, and the need for uh, for Christ, so how how do we as as Christians, Orthodox Christians, Bible believing, and, and that can mean a lot that's of things. Right. That, yeah, that's yeah. A, so that's Orthodox tricky. Christianity, right? How uh, as Christians, how do we uh, get people to see the need for Christ? Because you know, people are not going to res- people are not going to look. For a cure, unless they know they have a disease. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, how do we convey that as Christians? Well, in the world today. In the world today, so I would say this because, again, there's different ways of, of doing that, but we have to bring to bear the real, realization of our, what, again, the word I use, brokenness, dysfunction. What is what is what is driving that? And if you drill down far enough, you see it's personal sin, okay? I am broken, and everyone around me is broken. Uh, And so we have to drill down, and we just have to keep reminding people that if you look around, you can see the evidence of sin. G.K. Chesterton, I could always stumble on that. Uh, He was a a Catholic apologist, Mm -hmm. but he said that... uh, the original sin is the only uh, Bible doctrine you can prove by reading the newspaper. When you see where where is this coming from, and 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 so you, that that's what I I think we have to. While we want to have good news, and we need good news, mm-hmm. and we need good news, n- not just the good news of the gospel, but the kind of good news that I try to highlight on my blog. We do need that, but we, we but but there is the reality that we are broken, we are lost, and we have to surrender to God. We have to not just take it piecemeal and accept this part of what he says, but not that part. We have to take what we can find in Scripture that, and, and what we see in the real world that illustrates we are broken, and, and we have to help people think that way. Now, that's, that's a broad subject. How you get people to think that way. One thing I, I would say, and again, R.C. spoke of that here, is he says, I'm afraid that in the United States of America today, the prevailing doctrine of justification is not justification by faith alone. It is not even justification by good works or a combination of faith and works. The prevailing notion of justification in our culture today is justification by death. All one has to do to be received into the everlasting arms of God is to die. That is all that's required. Death somehow erases our sin. Our atonement is not necessary. And I look at that, and you've heard me say this, everybody goes to a better place when they die. It's mm-hmm. prevalent in our culture, and Christian people repeat that. Right. Christian people repeat it. 
and without ever thinking that if death is is the you know well that's the punishment for sin everybody dies that's punishment for sin that's all that's involved and then we go to a better place well then what you're saying is hitler is in that better place and every horrible person in the history of humankind is in that better place there's got to be some place for eternal cosmic justice justice and and that is uh whether we like the word or not that is eternal damnation mm-hmm. and we we just don't hear enough of that today we're not told that if you choose to reject Christ you will suffer eternally that's that's not something we hear and certainly what, not enough we don't hear it no, and, no, you know, and we we no, we don't want to get up and preach hellfire and brimstone every week. No. But we do want to tell people that they have an eternal destiny, right? And uh, we cannot escape that, and somehow somehow get that back into our into our 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 consciousness as a as a culture as a world. Uh, and and to that end, I would say, which is something I realize increasingly that that's that's the work that god's got to do that that we can't do that there's no way we can you know there's no way we can go out and get all the churches that are teaching falsehood and liberalism to turn around Mm -hmm. god must move sovereignly in the earth for people to come and you call it you know the 1700s the great awakening um we need that globally we need a global awakening, in my view, because people just have just the total loss of eternal peril. Eternal peril. Exactly. Um, let's move on. He talks about next the necessity of the cross. So not only do we need the cross and the atonement, uh, it was necessary. Uh, for for that. Um, at the bottom of page 4, um, Dr. Sproul writes that the biblical view is that an atonement was not merely hypothetical necessary for man's redemption, but it was absolutely necessary. Um, for those that may not know, what is man's redemption? What is he talking about there? Well, he's talking about us being saved from our sins, which is an innate desire to rebel against God, evidenced, and let us let us say beyond that, using one of the phrases earlier, a ingrained rejection of authority from the moment of birth. Okay, right. we must be taught uh, to to obey, to do, to choose right over wrong. Uh, that proves again for me that proves sinfulness. And I've got grandchildren. I had children. I've got grandchildren. Uh, they're beautiful. I love them to death. But you can see that. In fact, little Chloe, I call her uh, malevolently, her beautiful, uh, beautifully malevolent. You know, uh, on one hand, I love her to death. On the other hand, she's devious and and manipulative, and and she's only five years old. You know, so that's that just demonstrates our 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 brokenness and our sinfulness, and that's what we need deliverance from. That is what we need deliverance from. Uh, and so we kind of boil it down to that. 
And again, you have to have a longer discussion with people about it. But it's that fundamental sense that we are lost and that we need salvation. Right. Now, now let me let me unpack lost there again. One of my favorite terms because people say, well, yeah, I'm lost, but I'll find my way out. When the Bible uses that kind of terminology, and, and in fact, the only place that, uh, that, that a person says it in the story of the prodigal son, uh, he says, my son was lost and now is found. The boy made his way back home, and that can lead us to the belief that we can make our way back home again. Uh, the, the, so there's, there's a little bit of difference in that story. But here's the way I say about lost, is that you're lost in the wilderness, and you can't find your way out. Somebody's got to come and rescue you, okay? Mm-hmm. That's lost. And that, again, is not the way most people think. Well, it'll work out. I'll figure out something. I'll get it fixed. I'll, I'll solve it. But you cannot solve your spiritual plight. Christ has to solve your spiritual plight. And that, so that's what, that's what redemption and atonement means. There's a stain on my heart caused by my personal rebellion against God, evidenced from the moment I was born. Um, and, and God has to rescue me from myself. And that's what redemption, uh, redemption means. I like the way he says hypothetical because the belief, the people believe that Christ, that that's just the way God chose to do it. He could have done it a different way. Mm-hmm. And and the Bible says, no, there really was no other way for my sins to be covered and paid for except right. for God's son to die. Mm-hmm. And the, you, you mentioned this, you can't uh, seek a cure till you know you're sick. That is precisely, I will not ever turn to Christ until I recognize that I am horribly, terminally ill. And he is the only one that's got a solution. As long as I think, oh, well, one day I'll, I'll get it, I'll figure it out, it'll be okay, I'll get it worked out, you're not, you haven't yet come to the place of the full recognition of your sin, that I have nothing, I have no hope except Christ. Christ and only Christ, or I'm doomed for eternity. Right. So we have a big problem, um, a huge problem, and we can't solve it ourselves. Um, that's why the, uh, that's why the cross is necessary because we cannot solve it ourselves. Only Christ uh, could solve the problem on, on the cross. Um, it's because of the justice. God is a just God, right? He is a righteous, uh, God. Um, I want to ask you this. I've heard a pastor say that God is not fair. God is just. Do you agree with that? And if so, what, what's the difference between being fair and, and being just? Okay, well, uh, uh, fair would mean, so So, when we talk about as it relates to our sin, okay, fair would be to, okay, that's, that's a, a little more involved. So let me see. I would say it like this. Fair would mean that God would take into consideration all of our positive attributes. The problem is, biblically, we have no positive <laughs> attributes to take in. Yeah, that's a big problem. Okay, so that God's justice in that connotation has to do with his faithfulness to his own word 
to rescue those who call upon his name. That's where the justice would come in. Uh, yeah, people do. People do think in that way. God is, well, God's fair. And when I get this for him, he'll balance it out. No, there's nothing to balance out. All of our, all of our, uh, works are like filthy rags, Isaiah says. Uh, uh, Paul in Romans, quoting from the, the Old Testament says, there's none of us that no one does good. No, not one. So, it isn't a matter of being able to sit down with God and say, well, you know, God, I realize I did a few things wrong, but look over here. you got to take this into consideration. God says, no, your sin has stained all those things. Mm-hmm. They're, they're unacceptable because they're stained by your sin. This, again, is the difference between understanding sin as something we do and sin as a condition we have that drives us to do those things. Right. A lot of people just think, well, I, you know, I did a few bad things in my life, but I've done a lot of good things. No, your good things are tainted by the sinfulness uh, that, that is part of our broken, fallen condition. And until you, until you get that, uh, you, you will, you'll, be, you'll be expecting God to be fair, and he will be. He'll give you exactly what you deserve, eternal damnation for your rebellion. Mm-hmm. versus grace when I cry upon his name. Grace. Yeah. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Um, I think they call that the doctrine of substitution. Uh, but what... How does that affect, and, and how does that fall in, and tell us why the, the cross is necessary? Well, it tells us, you know, that's a that's a heavy passage, but it tells us that that God Himself had to bear the weight of our sin, right? Because we could not do it. Uh, we could not do it. No, notice how how easy that is. People say, "Well, yeah, He did it for some people because they couldn't." be good enough, but I can be good enough. That's not what the scripture says. And if you go, if you read all of it, it's he, 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 he consigned all under sin mm-hmm. so that none could boast in their righteousness. That thinking that you were talking about, that goes back to Pelagius, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, absolutely. We're, 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 we're basically good right. and we just got to, we can make it, we can you know, work we it can out. We enough. can be good enough for God. And, and you just, that that undermines the whole concept of right. sin. It if, doesn't. That's not what the Bible. No, teaches. no. And you and you and and you following that through. If you believe that you're not very bad, that that you can do it on your own, then we're faced with the question of why Christ died, and that's where you then lead into the idea. Well, he's he died to be an example for us, an inspiration for us, uh, and 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 all of that. He didn't die to atone for our sins. But that's not what the Bible teaches. I always like to say this this way. You can believe that, but that's not what the Bible teaches. You know, because people want to say, well, I insist on believe Believe it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And And the question you have to ask yourself is, are you willing to stake your eternity on the idea that you are absolutely correct. Let's go back to, uh, let's let's not go back, let's go to something that we are all notorious for. 
and that's self-diagnosis. How many people have died of terminal illness because they kept saying, well, it's just a little a little pain in my back. It's no big deal. I've been off, you know, I've had a little trouble with digestion lately, but it's, it's just because I'm getting older. Self-diagnosis. And then they find out they've got some kind of serious disease. Um, what is it? What, that's the same thing scripturally. Instead of saying to accepting what God says about us, that we are sinners who cannot save ourselves, we keep self-diagnosing and say, well, I'm not that bad. I'll get this worked out. I'll get that worked out. And it, it undermines the work of Christ. It just undermines the work. Why, why do we need Christ? Well, I don't, I don't need him. I want him, but I don't really need him. Well, you don't want him either. If you oh, if you yeah. take him the way he comes, right? The the sinful man. Uh, what, how does Paul say it? The carnal man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Mm-hmm. They are foolishness to him. Right. Only by God's work in our heart do do the things of God and the things of Scripture begin to have appeal to us. Mm-hmm. And and that's. That's the situation. That goes back to knowledge and the Word of God. You know, uh, and faith comes by hearing and hearing right. by the Word of God. Um, I've also heard a pastor, and I can't remember who it yeah. was, but he said, there are three words that came together at the cross. He says, uh, justice, mercy, and grace. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he says, God's justice is Christ took what we deserve. Right. God's mercy is not getting what we deserve. And uh, God, uh, and God's grace is us getting what we don't, don't deserve. deserve. Yeah. Um, I've also heard, and, and I can't remember where I heard this, there's an exchange made at the cross. Right. Um, and if you know what I'm talking about, go ahead and, and explain that. What the exchange? Well, I can't. I can't remember who first coined it, but it goes back into, into church history. It's called the Great Exchange. Christ took our sin. Right. We got His life, His right. grace, His mercy, or His righteousness. Yeah. His righteousness, oh, right. exactly. Cloaked in His yeah. righteousness. His righteousness. Yeah. So they had no righteousness. Right. Exactly. They were filthy rags. Right. So that's the Great Exchange. Uh, again, it's it's more to it than that, but right. I don't remember exactly who who used that phrase. I can't either. I, I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah, but you, you but but it is uh, it is that fundamental sense. He became sin for us that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's that's the exchange. Uh, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling, and as a consequence, I'm given life eternal. I'm given a new name. I'm adopted into the family of God. You know, that's another uh, discussion for a future day. But generally, people say, I got saved. That's They, they kind of mean they, for, they were forgiven for their sins, and they never get into the next part about adoption. We have been adopted into God's family. So it's not just my sins are forgiven. Now I'm part of a new family right. that I don't deserve to be in. Mm-hmm. It's 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 fantastic. But that's what the great exchange entails. I heard someone tell a story. It says a lady went to a photographer to have her picture made, and when she saw it, she didn't like it. So she asked the ph- photographer to take her picture again, and he said, 
Well, lady, what's wrong with it? She said, well, it doesn't do me justice. And he looked at it, and, he, and then he looked at her real close to, and he said, lady, you don't need justice. What you need is mercy. <laughs> so, you know, there are a lot of people clamoring for justice right. nowadays, yeah. and they really don't know what they're asking yeah. for. They don't want God's justice. No. Uh, because if we got God's justice, he would send us all. Right. We would all be in hell. Right. Uh, but it's through his mercy and grace and the atoning work on the cross. Absolutely. That we can be reconciled back uh, to Christ. But that story just highlights uh, James, where James says the law is, is like a mirror. You look into it and you don't like what you see. Uh, in this instance, the woman wants you to take another picture, and some people would just try to change the scripture instead of accepting what it says about me and exactly. and, and then go from there. Uh, so that's it's a great story. It's a great little story. Pastor. Thank you. Great. I enjoyed it. God yeah. bless you. Thank Fantastic. you very much. God bless you. Bibles, Bulldogs, and Beards was brought to you by BibleBulldog.com. Purveyors of antiquarian Bibles, theology books, and other Christian items. Also enjoy hundreds of podcasts and sermons while you visit BibleBulldog.com. Visit BibleBulldog.com today.